helpful because we covered some of the same things that, uh, as I said, I'm going to go a little further in tonight. We'll start in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. This is the beginning of Jesus last week here on the earth. This was just before he was uh, betrayed and crucified. It says, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. That's a little blind to us. What this means is, and it still works this way in, uh, uh, in Israel, that part of the world over there now. The fig tree produces leaves and figs at the same time. I've got a peach tree in my yard that's that way. It, uh, the leaves fall uh, in the winter, and, uh, and then when the leaves start coming out in the, uh, uh, in the spring, then you know that it's time for it to bear fruit. And the translators, even though it's a small point, uh, it seems that the translators did everything they could to confuse us about how things work. But we'll forgive them. They know better now. So Jesus finds this tree having leaves, and uh, green leaves would be an indicator. It's supposed to be an indicator that there's fruit on the tree, but it's, there's not. And so Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Let's skip down to verse 20. And in the morning, that means the next morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Other translations say, Have the faith of God. We coined the phrase, Have the God kind of faith. Well, whatever faith God has would be the God kind, wouldn't it? So that's what we mean when we make that statement. So Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now I want you to look with me to this um, 22nd verse specifically, where it says, Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. This word have is the word to hold. It means hold on to something. Well, we know that the Bible tells us in Hebrews to hold fast the profession of our faith. And that fits right in line with what Jesus is talking about when he explains what faith is and how it works. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. There's the only disqualifier. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now I'm going to turn back. It's, it's, you can if you want to. Don't have to if you don't want to. But in, Mark chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the 7th chapter, gives us some information that will go along with this, I believe. Jesus tells the story, the parable, of the house that's built upon a rock versus the one that's built on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew. Both storms hit both houses. The one that was built on a rock, talking about building your house or building your life on the Word, the truth of God's Word, that house stood. The storm wasn't able to topple it. But the house that was built on the sand crumbled and was made ruin. But I want to get to the 28th and the 29th verses. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. For he taught them, I'm reading from the King James, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now notice the word one there. Do you see that it's in italics? Whenever you find a word in the King James that's in italics, it means the translators added the word to help us with our understanding. Now folks, I would be perfectly willing to accept that this would be a good translation in some places. Or maybe we should say a good description in different places where Jesus ministered the word and ministered healing. Because Jesus doing the great works, you remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, Master, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. Then Jesus says, you must be born again. He's explaining the entrance, the doorway to the supernatural and even the miraculous. He says, you must be born again. But here, it's not saying that Jesus did miracles. It says when he ended these sayings. And notice the people weren't astonished at him. They were astonished at his doctrine. Now, if you take the word one out, and like I said, it's not in the original text. 
If you take the word one out of that verse and look at the two words as having, for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. The word as is a word that refers to the way something is done or how something is done. And this word having is the same word that we just saw in Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And it means to hold. So if we put a literal translation of this or literal definition of these two words in this scripture, it would read like this. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching, for he taught them how to hold authority. Now, we know that's not the only thing he taught. We know, for example, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first foray into his hometown of Nazareth after he'd been baptized by John in the Jordan River, and the Spirit of God had come upon him, flown down from heaven like a bird would fly from the sky, and landed on him and stayed upon him. We know that in Nazareth he preached, according to Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and so forth. He tells them that he's anointed. It must have been important for them to know and believe that God is using him or has anointed him to do great works or just simply to bless the people, to bring deliverance and blessing and healing to people. Now, folks, think this through. If Jesus operated on the earth as the Son of God, with all of his heavenly power and glory, what all he had before he came to the earth still upon him, then why would he need to be anointed? And besides that, who can anoint God? It wouldn't make sense for God to anoint himself. But rather, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. All that that he had with the Father before the world was. All that he had with the Father during the creation of the earth. All that he had with the Father in every time, in every situation before he was born into the earth, born of a virgin. Jesus had a completely different power source or a completely different condition as the eternal God. But the Bible says he laid all that aside and came to the earth. He humbled himself and became like man. We've made this statement before, but I think it bears repetition at this point. There are over 60 times, uh, 65 I believe times, where Jesus identifies himself and over 60 of them, he identifies himself as the son of man. Only in one, in, uh, in one place, three times in John chapter 8, I believe it is, Jesus identifies himself as the son of God. So without question, he identified as the son of man, he identified with mankind rather than God. Now the reason for that is because he's trying to teach the people what God's will is who God is, what his character and his nature is, what he will do, and so forth, so that Jesus can make the sacrifice for mankind. But he's operating as the Son of Man. What I mean by that, he's operating as just a human with the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not throwing off on that. He had the Spirit without measure, meaning he had all the power of God available to him once he was anointed of the Holy Ghost in John's baptism. But notice here it says they were astonished at his teachings because he taught them about authority. Specifically, he taught them how to hold authority. So when Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, when it says he tells them have faith in God or have the faith of God, he's saying faith is a position, not a possession. See, we think of getting faith. Thank God we know how faith comes. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So whenever you hear the word preached or taught, faith will result. And if you're not growing in faith, if you're not building up your faith, then you're not hearing the word. No matter what denomination is, is preaching, no matter what the preaching's title or subject is about, the word always produces faith in the heart of the hearer. The Word of God is designed that way. It's a miraculous book. And whenever the Word is taught, faith is planted in the hearts of the believers. Now, what you do with it from there is up to you. 
You remember in Mark chapter 4, Jesus talked about the parable of the sower sowing the word. And he talks about the four different types of ground. He talked about the wayside where the word is sown, but Satan comes immediately and steals that from people's hearts. What that means is they're too in, uh, focused on other things than they are in the word, and so it takes no root in itself. He talked about the stony ground. He talked about the thorny ground. But then he talked about the good ground that produces fruit. The thing that produces fruit from the seed, the same seed was planted in all four types of ground. The thing that made the good ground successful in, in growing and producing fruit is the attention the individual gives to the word they've heard. And that's really what I want to talk to you about tonight, about focusing your attention on the word. So here where it says Jesus told them, have faith in God or hold a position of faith, he's telling them how faith works. He's telling them how to take that position of authority in the earth. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now back up with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 14. This is after Jesus comes to the fig tree and sees there's no fruit on the tree. Folks, God did not create trees to not produce fruit. God didn't make anything that's unfruitful. Anything that is unfruitful is not something that points back to God's original intent. So Jesus realizes that. Now, this tree has a lot of symbolism. This tree represents Israel. And on the last week of Jesus' life, early in the last week of his life here on the earth, he's identifying that the sacrifice he makes will not just be for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, partly because, or in great part, because the Jews have rejected him on every hand. So when Jesus speaks to the fig tree, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever, notice it says Jesus answered. Jesus answered the fig tree. Now what's he answering? We think of answering as being kind of a discussion. This word answered literally means to conclude for oneself. It means to respond, but it, means, it goes further than that. It means to give a response because of a conclusion you've reached. And Jesus came to the fig tree and curses the fig tree. What does that tell us about Jesus? Well, he's not having to stop and pray and find out if God wants him to do anything about the tree, is he? He doesn't say to his disciples when he comes to the tree, oh man, I thought there'd be fruit on this. Hold up for a minute. Let me kneel down here on the road and see what God would have me to do. The action he took was because of what he knew about God already. The action he took is because as the creator of the universe, creator of the earth, he knew that trees were supposed to produce fruit. And if they didn't produce fruit, they're not good for anything. Except firewood maybe. So Jesus answers. And here's the point. The point is our circumstances, every circumstance that faces us in life, is intended by the devil to influence us away from God and his word. And so Jesus answers the fig tree. Jesus recognizes that the fig tree is a test. It's not a test of his deity. It's not even a test of his power. Those things are established already. But it's an unfruitful circumstance. And the test is simply this. Is Jesus going to accept an unfruitful circumstance to remain in his life? The answer is clearly no. Now, there are other places where this word is used, the word talking about answering. And each time it's talking about somebody that comes to a conclusion. They make their own conclusions. Now, this is not intended to be a word study. And so it, it's not just, we're not just going to look at scriptures that talk about answering and so forth. But let's look at a couple. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. I referred to that a few minutes ago. Maybe it'd be good for us just to read it. Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching the parable of the sower sowing the word. That's not what I want. I'm in the wrong book. I want Matthew chapter 4. 
I couldn't figure out what was wrong with that. Matthew chapter 4 tells us, beginning in verse 1, Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's a poor translation. Jesus wasn't led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He was led into the wilderness to fast and pray and commit himself to God for the earthly ministry that he's about to enter into. He hasn't done any signs and wonders and miracles yet. He's been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He's received the anointing of the Holy Ghost, but he goes to separate himself unto God. But after he was there for a period of time, he was tempted of the devil. It became a place where the devil tempted him. But that's not why he went into the wilderness. See, God doesn't lead you into temptation. Are you with me? Now, that's not to say that the devil can't tempt us anywhere and everywhere he goes or everywhere we go. But that wasn't the purpose for him going out into the wilderness. And so when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Notice verse 4. But he answered. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Notice what Jesus is doing. This, is, this word answered is the word to conclude for yourself or to respond. Jesus is answering the devil according to the conclusions he's made in his life. And that conclusion is nothing of the flesh is worth what acting on God's word is. He makes, he's drawn the conclusion. He reveals to us that he's concluded that the word of God is the primary thing and the only thing that's worth following. Even if something else would provide him physical benefit. Let me show you another one. Look with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, it says, When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. But now notice the centurion's response. The centurion answered. He answered. Do you see that? Same word that we saw in the other verses. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Notice the, the uh, centurion is revealing the conclusion that he's already come to about Jesus. Now, he's heard of Jesus. One of the other gospel accounts tell us that he heard of Jesus and then came to where he was to get help for his servant. Well, that would certainly have to be true. But what did he believe about Jesus even before he found Jesus? Well, based on the things that we see in, that he said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, he concluded that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. He had already concluded that. He didn't need Jesus to tell him whether or not he had power over sickness and disease. Now, I would imagine the only source of that information would have been the stories that he heard, the reports that he heard of the miracles and the healings that Jesus was doing in different places. What else would cause him to know that? But he's also concluded that his goodness, his worthiness was not an issue. He tells Jesus point blank, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. Now, what is he doing? Is he trying to tell Jesus, you know, the cleaning ladies don't come for another couple of days, so please don't come to my house while it's while it's messed up. Well, I don't believe that would be the case. Why does he talk about himself in the way that he does? Because he realizes if Jesus has authority over sickness and disease and is ministering to people as he's heard to perform signs and wonders and miracles, healing miracles and deliverances, deliverance provided for all people that come to it, he has to have heard something to that effect or else he wouldn't have come to Jesus for help. But he realizes that his condition, his spiritual condition, has no bearing on the fact that God sent his son to the earth to minister healing and deliverance. Now, folks, if the modern-day church would get a hold of that simple truth, when it comes to the power of God, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the goodness of God. You remember over in James chapter 5, 
Verse 14, it says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over the sick, anointing them with oil in the, in, uh, the fear of the Lord, anointing, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15 goes on to say, and the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. It's not the elders, it's not the oil. It's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And the rest of that verse goes like this. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So even if, it says if, it doesn't say that it's going to be that case or be that way with everybody. But even if it is that, that way with someone, even if they are in this condition of sickness based on their own sin, that sin doesn't keep them from receiving the power of God. That sin that for, is forgiven or brings forgiveness is available right alongside the healing power of God. Well, if that's the case, and thank God it is, then how is it that the devil gets a foothold in so many people's lives by making them think they're not worth what they're asking God to do? Why in the world does he talk to us about our unworthiness? Or am I the only one that ever hears that from the devil? No, he attacks us all that way, doesn't he? But nowhere does the Bible identify that that can keep you from the blessings of God. So when the centurion answers Jesus, no need for you to come to my house. I understand the authority you have over sickness and disease. Notice Jesus' position over that. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the Gentiles. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed from this same hour. I want you to look at another portion of scripture with me, and that's Matthew chapter 14. And we talked about this a little bit this morning, but now I want to turn, turn it around and talk from the other side. Here's the story when Jesus sends the disciples away. Let's see how far back we want to get the, the story. Verse 22, and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before or ahead of him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. Now I want you to see that. The ship's being beaten about with the wind and the waves. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit or it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Verse 28, and Peter answered. Here's that word that we've seen before. To conclude for oneself. Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. This tells us the mindset that Peter had. And the mindset that Peter had would, it would be considered arrogant by the modern-day church in no uncertain terms. But notice Peter's mindset. Peter believes. Peter has concluded by his time with Jesus here on the earth. Peter has concluded that anything Jesus does is fair game for us to do too. He doesn't stop and beg Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to preach him a sermon saying, here's why this should not happen the way you want it to. Jesus doesn't respond to Peter and say, Peter, you poor silly fool. You'd never be able to do this. I'm the son of God and you're not. None of that stuff was present in Peter's thinking. And folks, this is really the point that I want to get across about this. Answering your circumstances means that you've done your preparation beforehand. You've come to the conclusion about God, 
about his favor toward us, about our relationship with him. This stuff doesn't happen on the fly. Let me give you another example. We'll get back to the story in just a second. You remember over in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says by the Holy Ghost, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Then he talks about we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Wherefore, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You remember how the Bible talks about the different pieces of the armor of God? He finally comes to the place where he says, having done all to stand, stand therefore. And then he mentions or identifies the armor of God, the pieces of the armor. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. You know why a lot of people aren't able to stand? Because they haven't done everything to stand beforehand. Having done everything to stand means you've put your preparation in. It means you've come to the place where you know that you know that you know why you believe what you believe. You know what the scripture says. You know what the Bible tells us. You know of of the teaching of the word of God to identify the character and the nature of God. The purpose that God has for man here on the earth. You've come to the understanding, the reality of this is who God is and therefore this is who I can be. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. See this centurion knew something before Jesus ever came on the scene. This centurion had already used his mind, and that's the big thing. That's the big point of this. They thought this thing through. Peter's thought this thing through. He knows that whatever Jesus does, he's empowering or delegating his disciples, the authority to his disciples, to do the same thing. Peter doesn't hesitate a bit. He doesn't get a group of the disciples together and say, what do you think? Should we ask him this? He knows from experience who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus has taught them about who God is, God the Father. And so Peter just instantly, when he hears Jesus' voice, says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out there with you. And Jesus doesn't hesitate. He says, come. Now, we know that Peter's walk wasn't very far. It says that he walked on the water to go to Jesus Verse 30, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Well, the wind didn't start blowing all of a sudden. The waves didn't come up out of nowhere. That's the whole reason why the ship is being tossed in the middle of the sea. One of the gospel accounts calls it a mega storm of wind. This is something that has already been going on. It's the reason why they haven't already reached the other side, I'm sure. It's now in the early morning hours, and they see Jesus walking on the sea. And I'm sure their visibility wasn't that great during the middle of the sea or being in the middle of that storm that they were in. But somebody spots something out there and says, oh, my goodness, it's a ghost. Jesus said, no, it's not. It's just me. Instantly, Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come out there and do what you're doing. He challenged God to challenge him. Folks, I love this story. I'd love to live up to this story and everything that I encounter in life. Wouldn't you? I'd like to learn from Peter's mistakes so we don't get halfway out and drown too. So Peter came down out of the ship and walked on the water to Jesus. Please notice that he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But then he let something else get in the way. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand and caught him. So he's made some kind of distance. He's closed the gap between between the ship and Jesus. Immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Wherefore didst thou doubt? Now we say casually that he took his eyes off Jesus. The reason he sank is that he took his eyes off Jesus. And figuratively, that's true. Figuratively, and what I mean by that is, in principle, it means he stopped looking at the thing that empowered him to walk on the water. But what was it that empowered Peter to walk on the water? Was it Jesus' presence? Or was it the word that Jesus spoke? See, one thing about Peter, 
Peter understood that if Jesus didn't tell him to come, there's no way he's going to get out on the water and walk too. He knows it has to be based on something Jesus says. His experience is that Jesus spoke the word and then the word was fulfilled. The promise was fulfilled. So he's got to have Jesus telling him to come in order for it to work. And folks, really that's the same thing that happened with the centurion. The centurion said, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, but speak the word only and my servant will be healed. And Jesus spoke the word. He told him, go your way and as you have believed, so be it done unto you. And his servant was healed in the self-same hour. So when we say Peter got his eyes off of Jesus, what that really means in, a, in the most literal sense is he got his eyes off the word. Well, if he got his eyes off the word and the only word that he was given was the word come, if he got his eyes off the word come, what did he put his eyes on? He saw the wind. He let the wind change his understanding or change his conclusion or influence the conclusion that he'd come to about Jesus and the power of God that's available for man. He let something else get in the way. He becomes like the thorny ground that the word of God was planted in like a seed but it wasn't continued to be moisturized. It wasn't watered. It wasn't tended. It wasn't cared for. And so the other things, the fear that was associated with the wind and the waves, that choked the word out. And he missed out on God's best. Now he started in God's best, but he didn't go through to completion. Do you see that? Now turn to chapter 15. I want to show you another example here. And like I said, this isn't intended to be a word study, but I think you can see the principle of these things in all of these stories. Beginning in verse 21, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. Here's the same word that's used as before. He answered her not a word. Jesus has made his conclusions about the power of God, the plan of God for his life, and the character and the nature of his heavenly father. And he's made those, he's come to those conclusions based on the truth of the word. The only word they had at that time was the law and the prophets. But that gave him enough to have intimate knowledge of God and what his purpose for him was. So he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him saying, send her away for she cries after us. But he answered and said, here's another time the word is used. He answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now folks, I want you to realize Jesus is responding to the circumstance he's in. He realizes this woman is the daughter of Canaan, which means that she's not an Israelite. There's some speculation as to whether or not she was part Jewish. But we really don't even know that for certain. She might have been. But remember, God commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with other peoples, other tribes of people. So he answered and said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Same word answered again in verse 26. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered. Fourth time it's used in this scripture, this passage. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, Great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. What, does her, what do her words and her actions tell us about the conclusion she's come to about Jesus? We know she's heard something maybe similar to what the woman with the issue of blood heard. Or maybe similar to what the centurion heard. She certainly had knowledge that Jesus was the healer or healing other people. She finds him in her territory in close proximity to where she lived. So she goes to him to implore him to help her daughter. But because Jesus was sent to the Jews, and this has prophetic fulfillment of, fulfillment of prophecy implications, Jesus didn't answer anything. 
And several times he tries to get rid of her. Several times he tries to tell her, I can't help you now because of certain things. I can't help you because of what the prophets prophesied of me about going to Israel first. I can't help you. But folks, please realize, Jesus could not say no to faith. Even though it violated who he was supposed to be ministering to at the time. Even though she wasn't of the right pedigree or ancestry. Jesus, who never changes, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, could not say no to her faith. Now, folks, I don't want you to get the idea that we have to talk God into doing what he doesn't want to do. Because if you're not careful, you can let the devil twist the words of this story to give you a wrong picture of who God and Jesus are. But when it comes down to it, it's like Smith Wilbersworth said many years ago. He said, God will pass over a million people to get to one person in faith. Jesus could not say no to faith. And he identifies that's what it was. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, I'm running out of time, so let me, let me skip over to another one. Hebrews chapter 11. The author of the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but it's inspired by the Holy Ghost, whoever it is, is inspired by the Holy Ghost to talk about people that were examples in faith to us. Now, we know that Abraham is talked about a lot by Paul. Paul spends a great deal of time in Romans chapter 4 talking about how that Paul, or how that Abraham, rather, kept his eyes on the Word. He kept his eyes on the promise of God instead of looking at the condition of his body. Now, that doesn't mean he, could, he denied the condition of his body. Remember, his body, is uh, because of his advanced age, he was almost 100 years old. Because of his advanced age, there was no hope for him and Sarah, who was 90, to have a child. But that's what God had promised. And it seems that earlier in his life, some years prior to this, Abraham had given up on that promise. But God hadn't forgotten it. God had a covenant partner that he'd made a promise to. And he wasn't going to let that promise go unfulfilled. But the problem is, certainly not from God's standpoint, but from Abraham's standpoint, he's been conditioned by the world. He's been conditioned by life experience to know that he and Sarah are too old to have children. Well, what do their ages have to do with anything if God's behind them? We know the answer is no. But Abraham had to come to that point. It's easy for us to say. But you get in the middle of a situation where your body is screaming at you day by day by day. It can't work. It can't work. It can't work. It takes some pretty heavy lifting to counteract that voice that's coming against your mind. And remember, the devil always tries to use physical circumstances to influence you away from faith. To get you out of this position of faith. That God has made available to us because we're children of, of his, children of God through salvation. So the Bible tells us what Abraham did. He recognized the condition of his body as being too old to have children. Same thing for Sarah. But he realized that there was something that superseded the realities of his flesh. And that was God's promise. And the promise God had made was that his seed would be as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore without number. And so Abraham did one thing specifically. He looked at the promise of God instead of anything else. He reminded himself. He talked to himself about what God had promised. And the Bible says that that brought him to a place where he was strong in faith. And there were two characteristics of that strong faith that it tells us in Romans chapter 4. He was strong in faith, number one, giving glory to God that what God had promised would certainly become a reality. And the second was he became fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Now, folks, that took Abraham some time to get to that place where he was fully persuaded. There are things that I've become fully persuaded about that I thought I was fully persuaded about a long time ago. But there are sometimes some things and some beliefs 
that you're just not going to get there overnight. None of us are. And sometimes, remember the Bible says that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. Sometimes it's the afflictions themselves and our need to face those symptoms, face those conditions, face those troubles. Armed with the word of God, having done all to stand, stand therefore. Sometimes it's the circumstances themselves which force us into a situation to shore up our faith or to grow in faith or to become fully persuaded. So Abraham and Sarah wind up having a child just like God said that they would. But now some years have gone by. Maybe as many as 20 years have gone by. And Isaac, the son of promise, becomes the subject of something else God directs Abraham to do. Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. You know the story that it's talking about, I trust. There came a point in time where after Isaac was growing up, he was in, at least in his adolescent years, maybe older. I've seen different um, guesses. They must be just guesses about how old Isaac would have been when God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Now think about what that means. Think, put yourself in Abraham's position. If God said, offer him as a sacrifice, God never told him to sacrifice him. Whether Abraham realized that or not, I don't know. But God did tell him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. In other words, be willing to sacrifice your own son. That's what this was all about. It was a test to see if Abraham would withhold his son from God, which means if he did, if Abraham withheld his only begotten son, then God would not have been able through covenant rights to give his, God's only begotten son to the earth. So this test, eternity stood hanging in the balance there. So Abraham, when he was told by God to go to a certain place, Mount Moriah, and offer him as a sacrifice, Abraham does exactly what God told him to do. He takes the servants and everything that they need for the sacrifice except the animal, and they went three days from where they were to the foot of the Mount Moriah where God said for them to go. He took Isaac, left the servants down at the bottom of the mountain, took Isaac up, on, up onto the hill, prepared the sacrifice, put the fire, made it ready, and got everything going. Isaac, who's done this before, he knows how this works. Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? We've got everything except the animal to kill. And Abraham says prophetically, God will provide himself a sacrifice. It doesn't say God will provide a sacrifice for himself. It says he will provide himself, meaning Jesus, as a sacrifice. Well, Abraham gets to, the, to that place. He must have explained to Isaac what was going on. He had to have because Isaac was laid on the altar. At that point, Abraham would have been somewhere 115, 120 years old. There's no way that Isaac couldn't have overpowered him to get away from this sacrifice or being sacrificed. There's no way that Isaac would not be complicit in this. So Abraham gets to the last moment, raises the knife to his son's neck, and an angel appears and tells him to stop. And the angel says, now I know, on behalf of God, now I know that you did not withhold your only son. And that gave God a legal right. As being in covenant with Abraham, it gave him a legal right to send Jesus to the earth to be the sacrifice for mankind. But what was going through Abraham's head during all this time? What's going through his head on that three-day journey. I doubt very seriously if he's explained it to Isaac to that point. And if he had explained it to Isaac at that point, then what's Isaac asking where the sacrifice is when they start up the mountain? So Isaac must have been in the dark until that point in time when Abraham explained it to him. But folks, remember, when we answer our circumstances, it means we come to a conclusion. We speak based on the conclusion that we've drawn whether it's right or wrong, whether it's 
scriptural or not, whether it's faith or unbelief. It's the conclusion that we draw. So what does Abraham, what conclusion do we see that Abraham reached? Let's go back to the Hebrews 11. Let me start again in verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. According, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also had received him in a figure. Here's what this means. It means that Abraham came to the place where he understood, he remembered that promise that God had made that his seed would be like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And God had specifically said that seed will come through and from Isaac. So what does Abraham think? He thinks, surely God wouldn't have me go through this, go through with this. But if he does, I've got to be prepared for it if he does. If he does let me go through with this, then how can Isaac be the one from whom the seed comes? He can't have children if he's dead. So what does that mean? And again, here's Abraham figuring out. He's using his understanding. He's using his mind, which God wants us to do. So he concludes for himself. That if God has to raise Isaac from the dead, that's what he'll do. So now he's willing to go through with the sacrifice. Here it says, accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead. From whence he also received him in a figure. That phrase is a little bit difficult for us to understand in the King James English. But it just simply means this. As far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was already raised from the dead. Now, folks, that is a tremendous conclusion to draw. And there's no way we could draw that conclusion unless God had told us the same thing he told Abraham. So the faith, the trust that Abraham showed in God reached all the way into the understanding that if God had to raise my son from the dead, so be it. I'll not turn my back on God. Now, folks, it's amazing to me when we understand these things, when we see these things. It's amazing to me what little, small difficulties people allow to turn them from faith in God to not believing his promise or not believing his word. The smallest things But when we understand the position that we have, remember the Bible says that Jesus was raised after the Spirit of God came back upon him. He had paid the price for mankind uh, for sin and spiritual death. It said the Spirit of God came back upon him and God raised him up and seated him at his, at his right hand in heavenly places. It's talking about Ephesians chapter 1 where it tells us those things. And then chapter 2 goes on and tells us that he raised us up to be seated with Christ in the same heavenly places. Now, obviously, he's not talking from a literal sense. You're not seated with Christ literally. We're here literally. But positionally, that's where we are. Now, folks, how can you be there? How can that be a position that God gives to us? Well, there's only one way that we can understand it. And that is through the new birth, we were made righteous. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And since we are in him... Wherever he's seated with God positionally, we're seated with him. So we are righteous children of a righteous God. And that righteousness was achieved by faith. Even the faith of God himself. So we're righteous children of a righteous father. We're righteous faith people of a faith God. And that's who you are. Whether you ever live up to it or not, whether you ever exercise the authority that comes with it or not, that's the place where every born-again child of God is seated. And if we would come to the understanding that because we are God's children, God would not allow the work of the devil to overcome us any more than he allowed the work of the devil to overcome Jesus when he was in his earthly ministry. Jesus, three years here on the earth, is a perfect example of what we're supposed to live 
like and live up to because now we're made righteous through his righteousness and we're of the same spirit of faith as he. Look at all the things that couldn't stop Jesus. The Jews wanted to kill him, but he walked through the midst of them. They took up stones to stone him, but he passed right by them. When they were hungry, he multiplied loaves and fishes. He walked on the water. He led his disciples into net-breaking, boat-sinking catches of fish on several occasions, identifying his provision for those that serve him. What will he do for you? Exactly the same thing. But that place of faith, that position, that holding the faith of God, Again, we know that that means in part holding fast the confession or profession of your faith for he's faithful that promised. But the way that we stay in that place, the way that we walk in faith is that we conclude that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We conclude that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. We conclude these things to be true. And it seems to me like most of the church world reads them, kind of laughs at it and says, well, that's not true. And then never considers them again. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. We should take these promises and think on them, meditate on them, consider them. Until we come to the place where Abraham did. Where we're fully persuaded that what God had promised, has promised us. He's well able to bring it to pass. I don't know about you. But I'm starting to see myself in a different way. And certainly we all need to. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us, instructs us, and guides us to understand your love and to understand what you have done for us, the great things that you've done for us through Jesus our Savior. Father, open our spiritual eyes that we may see and know these things like never before. That we would understand that we have authority on the earth and no weapon formed against us shall prosper. And greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Help us to understand and to realize these truths that we might be fully persuaded concerning your plan for us even as Abraham became concerning Isaac's birth. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to answer our circumstances, to prepare ourselves to stand against the work of the enemy and successfully stand. We call our bodies healed since Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. We call our needs met. We call our finances abundant. We call our lives peaceful. Thank you, Lord, that all these things are true. In Jesus' precious name, amen.